You're listening to the Your Queer Story podcast, the podcast that inspires peace, love, and radicalism, led by your favorite hosts, Evan Jones and Paul Hobbs. Trigger warning. Our content covers centuries of LGBTQ plus stories, and occasionally we may use outdated language or cover topics that include violence, assault, homophobia, transphobia, as well as other injustices against marginalized communities. Make sure you subscribe and review wherever you are listening, and be sure to follow us on all social media at Your Queer Story. And if you want exclusive content, join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash yourqueerstory. You're here, now let's get queer. Welcome to another episode of Your Queer Story. We're your hosts. I'm the amazing, magnificent, and beautiful Paul Hobbs. And I am the incredibly handsome, talented, future president, Evan Jones. Actually, I'm going to run for president one day. No, I'm going to run for president first. Can I be your vice president? You can. You would really let me be your vice president? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if America will let either (laughs) of us go near the presidency, but yes. You can be my vice president. You heard it here first. The commitment. <laughs> signed in blood. Done. Definitely going to happen. There's no way that listening to this podcast is going to hurt us at all. No, we'll just... People will I love mean, it. We'll just do what Trump did. That wasn't me. Exactly. I never did that, that wasn't me. Our, uh, you know, I was a yo- lot younger then. And by younger, I mean I was in 50s. I was 55 years old whenever I was <laughs> talking about grabbing women by their pussy. But we all make mistakes when we're young. Am I right? <laughs> so... <laughs> We are inching closer and closer to the end of this year, believe it or not. I yeah. mean, we've got, what, like a couple this, weeks? Yeah, this was a, a week. A week and a half, something week, like that? Yep, week and a half. Um, so we hope all of our listeners are having a wonderful holiday season, whatever holiday you celebrate. So whether it's religious or pagan or just a simple celebration of friends and family, which is what I usually have, mm-hmm. I hope you're having a great holiday season. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to go to the winter solstice um a service this year. I don't go to church, but there is a church that has winter solstice on uh, December 21st, which this episode drops on the 22nd, but we're uh, recording in between there. So um, I I wanted to go last year, but I had a conflict, you know. So. What's the winter solstice? It's like, um, <clears throat> that's the, like, the rebirth of um, Earth, you know. It's like Earth dies and then re- is reborn. It's not and it's nothing. I don't think that's how it works. No, that's, it's, it's this. It's something what to do with the sun. Don't look at me like that. It's it's a. It's not a pagan holiday, and it's not. You don't think the Earth is flat, do you? No, no, Paul. This is a real. <laughs> this is literally how it is. It's like the. You know how the days get longer and the days get shorter. The Earth doesn't die. It's. But it's like. But it's a. It's a. What's the word I'm looking for? What's the word I'm looking for? God. It's a metaphor. Christian? It's No, it's nothing spiritual. <laughs> it's a metaphor for like winter and winter we die and then we start to grow again. And then like it's I like the cycles of seasons. Aggressive. It's so fun. Because it's not spiritual, goddammit. It's just a metaphor for life and personal growth and all kinds of things. It's the ending of a year. And then with the new year comes new hope. It's just inspirational. Whatever. You know what? Just because I have a shred of faith in me, you atheist heathen. <laughs> Where were we at? Okay. Paragraph two. So. 
<laughs> so back to the York history. We also want to thank our patrons for helping make this podcast possible. And a special thanks to Michael Finlang, the author of The Knights Wishing Well. That's knights as in a knight of the round table. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an adorable story that puts the fairy in fairy tale. And there's still time to grab it as a last-minute gift for your loved one. Only $6 on Amazon Prime. It'll get there in two days, so you've got time just to sneak it right in there under the tree. Perfect stocking stuffer. It's the perfect size for a stocking. And, I mean, it's a, it would be a really great surprise, I think. They, yeah. Nobody, you, you've never seen or read anything like this. Yeah. So. You wouldn't expect it. You know, it's a really cute. So, um, and to the rest of our patrons, thank you as well. We really appreciate it. And we're going to be putting more, we've been working on more content, and we're going to be putting mm-hmm. some more up for you in 2019. So stick around with That'll us. It'll be a crazy fucking year. Crazy fucking year. Patreon slash Your Queer Story. Go there, and you can donate from a dollar, uh, $3 to really get our exclusive content. Mm-hmm. But Paul's got Paul's Wines. Paul Wines. Paul Wines, where he drinks wine and wines. It's on there. actually really fun. I have a lot of fun. I don't know. <laughs> Evan thinks it's extremely It's basically Paul just recording what he does on a nightly basis. So, <laughs> if you want a little sneak peek into his life, you could do that. It's basically all the stuff that gets edited out of the podcast. <laughs> basically. That's true. <laughs> That's true. So, if you, if you listen to an episode and you're like, Paul, Paul wasn't very active in this episode. Mm, you have no idea. Paul was active. Paul did a lot of editing in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, thanks everyone that has been listening for sharing, downloading, subscribing, and commenting. Um, every download, every share, every comment helps and really allows us to grow and share, I mean, not only our energy and our positivity, Mm -hmm. but also education and understanding with people from all over the world. Mm -hmm. Actually, some of our biggest... The United States is our biggest country, but we also have big listenership in Germany. Um, I forget where else, but we're we have quite a few people yeah. all over the world listening. So, I mean, thanks for sharing. What do you say? And how do you say thank you in German? Fucking God! Something that, like that. That I, no, you probably just insult the people. That's how they um, talk. It's very aggressive. <laughs> it's aggr- <laughs> uh, no, I took German for a year, so I Did should you? know this. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I don't remember anything. This is me and language, nothing. I, You're I'm German. terrible at it. And I was, I was a lot better at German than Spanish, obviously, because it's more related to, you know, English. But still, I you think I'd at least remember how to say thank you. Dankeschön. Oh, danke. Dankeschön. I thought it was just danke. Danke. It's something like that. Dankeschön. I must say Dankeschön. Probably just swore everyone. He's probably just cussed someone's mother out. Edelweiss, Edelweiss. That's not German. That's Austria. Whatever. (laughs) That's fine. That's for you guys. Evan and I both were completely (laughs) unable to learn languages. I took two and a half years of Spanish, and I just, my, I, I'm really good with numbers and science and math, but language, like, it just made no sense to me. I can barely speak or read English. So trying to... <laughs> they know, because they hear us trying to pronounce things on here. <laughs> trying to add another level to that. I really want to learn Mandarin, though. Mm, okay. I If you can't get Spanish and German, <laughs> I don't think you should try to touch Mandarin as one of like the most complicated languages in the world. But yeah, you go ahead and try. I'll do it. 
You did. My my sister almost speaks fluent Mandarin, and that's living in China for ten years and being a natural linguist. Hmm. Linguistic. Okay. Never mind. So. Just kidding. But no, I don't want to. You know, I don't want to squelch your dreams. So how about you make it your New Year's resolution to learn how to speak? I have Mandarin. way too much going on next year. <laughs> we have a special surprise coming up for you guys. A little bit uh, after, like the first quarter of the year, we'll yeah. start talking about it. Yeah, yeah, we got we got some things in the works for you guys. You're gonna like it. You're gonna learn to like it. Um, and if you don't like it, fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck your mom. What, what did their mom ever do to you? I don't know. She, this she, she a... released someone into the world who didn't like me. <laughs> what a bitch. So, uh, uh, yeah, so anyways. So instead of what you did this week, what's your favorite holiday tradition or holiday memory? Hmm... My favorite holiday tradition, I, I mean, it's real simple. I just really like going over to the family and having everybody in one place at the same time. Yeah. Catching up with all the relatives, you know. That's my favorite thing about the holidays. Oh, Jesus. Every time. My holiday memory, I don't know. I have, I, I don't, I don't have a particular holiday memory. I mean, putting the Christmas tree together with my family as a kid. Yeah. Like, the cousins would come over when we were all, you know, maybe, like, nine or so. I mean, I was the second oldest, so it was anywhere from, like, 11 to probably four. You know, we were all putting the Christmas tree up together, so that was a good memory at my grandma's house. Yeah. But other than that, I don't really have any particular memory that sticks out. Yeah. How about you? Um, well, I, I would say for tradition, so my second family, Samantha's family, um, they decorate their tree every year and it's a whole thing it used to be i guess they would go out and they would cut down a tree and do this whole elaborate thing ever since i came around i don't know if they just got older or whatever or you know they were like evan's already got enough to do on christmas let's uh cut it down yeah they still they still meet and go pick out the tree i have yet to take part in that process um but as far as the rest of it you know like getting together and we'll, we'll decorate the tree and um her mom makes what does she call it? Hodgepodge, which is just like a mixture of like, like you know, different kinds of nuts and pretzels and this like buttery mix, and it's really good. Like you mm -hmm. don't expect it to be as good as it is, and she makes that, and the house smells of it. It's it's really fun. So that's my tr favorite tradition. I'm excited for when we have kids and we can do that with them as well. Oh, I would love. David is still up in the air about kids. He's thinking mm -hmm. in his forties, but I would love. The, like, Christmas magic of a child. Mm, yes. I remember, like, those days of, like, it's so magical. And being able to give that to someone, to me, would be, like, so incredible. Yeah. Starting your own traditions and... Mm. Uh, one day. One day. Still looking for someone who wants to carry my child, BTW. <laughs> Anybody who just wants to volunteer for that. I don't have any money DM to pay me. you, but... <laughs> You're carrying your fucking kid. I don't have money. All right, well. It would be a favor. That's that's a little more. I don't think you can ask that as a favor. I can ask whatever I like. Do you mind if I just have your kidney as a favor? Like, unless you're a family member, you don't do that. I don't know. Would you give me your kidney if we were a match? If I was dying? Um, it's tough. <laughs> of course I would. Because I knew... Oh, wait. Kidneys aren't your lovers. Do kidneys you do lovers. alcohol? Kidneys can also be affected by yeah. alcohol. So see, yeah. I know you wouldn't destroy it, so I probably would. Yeah. Because you, because I can still like you only need one, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, you only I need one. Would. Yeah. 
Would you give me one? Yes, I would. Yeah, see? But I have always, I've already thought about my kidney list, and there are very few people on my kidney <laughs> list. You are on my list, but like, I'm not just giving it to anyone. I don't care. I'm just, like, because you only have one, because my biggest fear is that like, I'm going to give someone my kidney. And then it's not that I'm being selfish. one is going to go? No, it's not even for myself. Then, like, my kid's going to need a kidney. That's mm. my fear in life. I'm like, I'm going to give it to a somewhat close friend, not even a close friend, like a friend who needs it. Because I only need one. I'm fine with only living with one. But then my kid's going to need a kidney. And I'll be like, well, damn, I can't give my kid a kidney because I gave it to Sue See, over here that I don't even that. talk to anymore. I never thought about that. Yeah. You got to think, think about your kidneys. Like the girl that gave Selena Gomez her kidney. Like, good for you, but what if you're not friends in five years? Okay? Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. So, oh, no. And then my favorite holiday memory um, is when I was a kid. Um, it was the year after my dad died and we had moved to Indiana because my mother got some advice from our cult leader to just uproot the whole family from South Carolina and move us to Indiana. But I will say the people of that church came through that year and like they was the night before Christmas and we had like literally like three gifts under the tree because we had no money. Mm -hmm. And then someone knocked on the door and all these people started bringing in gifts that people at the church had donated. Mm -hmm. And it was just like gifts. Like, I mean, like literally gifts and gifts. So like the whole bottom of the tree was covered. It was stacked so high. So that's how they ring in. The cult <laughs> exactly. Oh yeah. It was totally manipulation to like suck us in mm -hmm. and be like, yeah, you need us like get it all. But as a child, it was still yeah, amazing. Magical. Yeah. It was still magical, you know? So yeah. Mm. Um, <laughs> Here's a good question. How and when did you find out that Santa wasn't real? I never believed in Santa. What? That's the whole magic of Christmas. I'm sorry, but my parents didn't. Santa was Satan Claus. He was a. They didn't believe in it. That's how. You, that's the whole point of Christmas. Like, it's like the uh, magic. No, part. the point of Christmas is Jesus. He was born <laughs> of a virgin, and he was born on. You know, December there's people 25th. actually posting that we shouldn't celebrate Christmas because Mary didn't get, give consent. <laughs> and it all comes full circle back at you god thinking you can just go around and rape some young girl in jerusalem yeah well time's up buddy me too <laughs> um but my how i found out that santa wasn't real my mom decided to be lazy one year mm-mm -mm. And Santa, Santa Claus and my mother had the same wrapping paper. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Mom, wait a minute. How did Santa, out of all the wrapping papers in the world that he could have picked, he picked the exact same one that you picked up from the local Walmart. That is quite a deduction from you, Sherlock. How old were you? Eight. Eight. Wow. <laughs> I've always been very observant. I would call that annoying. Because if I have an eight-year-old, that's like, oh, so you're going to tell me that Santa has the same wrapping paper? I'm like, shut up, you little shit. What are you, sit up all night thinking about this stuff? <laughs> I was always very observant as a child. <laughs> well, Kim, little did she know, yeah, she's supposed to drive there, buy the wrapping paper, bring it home, drive back, return the wrapping paper when you're not looking, get new wrapping paper. Or she could have just bought two different kinds of wrapping paper. She could have, where's she going to hide it? Now she's got to figure out where to hide this wrapping paper. Well, she, she hid the presents the from me the whole time. Good point. Good point. They have like four packs of wrapping paper. How do you only... I've never seen like a single roll of wrapping paper. <laughs> like when you... They're on the rack, there's like four in a roll. Like four in a pack. How do you even do that, Mom? She could have just said that Santa drops off the present and the, the parents wrap the present. My mom's not a good buyer. <laughs> Maybe she was just tired at that point. She was probably like, Maybe she's it. like, I'm a single mom raising an annoying eight-year-old. 
Um, I don't care anymore. <laughs> <Maybe>. you guys. <laughs> uh, All okay. right. We did get into our episode because it's got a lot of information. We're in the holiday spirit, so we're a little goofy and, you know, yeah. having a good time. Exactly. So we're going to jump into the history of a special holiday tradition. Today we're talking about the Gay Men's Chorus different branches across the country, how they started, what they faced, and how they make Christmas even gayer and merrier. Our journey starts in San Francisco on October 30th, 1978, one day before the official gay holiday of Halloween. But these queens hadn't thrown out their wigs and costumes just yet. Hadn't thrown on their wigs and costumes just yet. 115 men met to form the first openly gay chorus in the world. Just a few months earlier, director John Sims had organized the San Francisco Lesbian and Gay Marching Band and Twirling Corps, now called the Freedom Band. Yes, it's gay. Marching Band and Twirling Corps. Um, the, uh, the Freedom Band was the first openly gay music musical group in America. Sims was a music composer who graduated from Wichita State University in the early 1960s. He then relocated to Bloomington, Indiana. Jesus, why? I don't know. And and, of all places, every episode there's an Indiana, and I don't do it on purpose. It just happens. Indiana is very, and you know what? In like fifty years, they're gonna Mm -hmm. be there's gonna be another group of people telling history, and our names are gonna be in there, and they're gonna be like, they were from Northwest Indiana. (laughs) Indiana is just always involved in queer history. We just keep perpetuating it. I don't know what's going on. So um, he earned his master's degree in music in Bloomington, Indiana. Finally, he settled in San Francisco and took a job as a music teacher at a local high school. He also became involved in the local gay community and began living as an out gay man. I'm sure San Francisco was a ball back oh, then. Oh, yeah. Oh, I can't wait till we end up covering that in the future. It was probably so fun. Yeah. A difficult title to hold in the 19th, in the 60s and 70s, even in the queer capital of San Francisco. Oh, my Jesus. So, um... As a gay man. An out gay man uh, was it's a yeah. difficult title. To hold in the 1960s and 70s, even in the queer capital of San Francisco. There we go. In 1977, Sims heard the first openly gay elected official, Harvey Milk, speak his infamous hope speech. Milk traveled the country delivering this speech to queer Americans all over the nation. He encouraged them to come out of the closet and to live openly. Yes. So inspired by Milk's fiery words, Sims founded the John Sims Center for Performing Arts, which he used to house both the gay and lesbian marching band and the new chorus. Despite the fact that the group was founded as a deliberately openly gay chorus, there was still controversy about whether to put the word gay in the chorus. One of the founding members, Tom Amiano, said of the discussion, I remember an argument over whether to include the word gay in the title. Until the mid late until the mid to late seventies, any mention of gay was sensationalized and lured. Gay bashing was tactically approved. If a gay man called the police about being harassed, they would just arrest him. In the end, the members decided to keep the title Gay Men's Chorus, though a few of the men dropped out of the group over the name. And don't want to shame them because, I mean, they were probably thinking about their safety at the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, again, this is, like like we said, this is the 1970s. Mm-hmm. So, so Stonewall had just happened. Like, things still weren't going that great for the queer community, you know? Yeah. Well, this is, a, yeah, late 1970s. But yeah, yeah but no, no, yeah, still. Like, mm-hmm. living openly was just, yeah. 
Hey Queerstians, do you own a business? Are you an author or an entertainer? And would you like a great way to grow your audience? Well this commercial slot could be yours. For just $20 a month, we can advertise your show on our podcast. And as a rapidly growing queer content source, we want to help get your name out there. So if you want even more promotion, you can just choose our $30 tier to get ads and links on our website. And for only $40 a month, we'll review your product on our YouTube channel and link it to all of our social media. So go ahead, send an email to your queer story at gmail today or reach out to us on social media via messenger and let us make your business a little more queer bye, bye. so they began to, to plan their first performance for december 20th 1978 unfortunately tragedy would force them to perform much sooner on november 27th former san francisco supervisor dan white walked into city hall into city hall and coolly assassinated both mayor george moscone and queer hero harvey milk this sudden murder spurred the chorus to an impromptu performance later that afternoon on the steps of City Hall. The event was attended by at least 25,000 to 40,000 mourners who had marched to the City Hall from Castro Street. Three weeks later, the group held their official concert, which took place on December 20th, 1978, at Everett Middle School where the 115-voice chorus presented an electric program to a capacity crowd. They were led by conductor and coke director Dick Kramer. The chorus was an instant success, partly due to Kramer's commitment to musical excellence, and was rewarded with many reviews praising the group's ability. The group also began to write their own music to better represent the queer community. Composer Tad Dunlap wrote what is possibly the first ever gay-specific choral piece I understood with lyrics from one of Harvey Milk's inspirational speeches. I do want to say as I was reading, like people are constantly shocked that the gay men's chorus could be so good. And I was like, that's literally what gay men do. They <laughs> sing and they dance. Like, and they're like, wow, this is really good. It's an entire chorus of just gay men and you're shocked. Completely shocked that they're phenomenal. I'm blown away. I can't blown believe away. gay men Never. could be good. Wow. <laughs> they're wow. performers? Wow. No. Wow. <laughs> Not only was the San Francisco gay chorus a success, but they were an inspiration. One member, Ed Weaver, moved to the other side of the country and settled in New York City. There, Weaver decided to form his own chorus, missing the one he had left behind. The New York City gay men's chorus was an overnight hit. Their first season culminated in a sold-out concert with the Riverside Symphony at Alice Tully Hall in June 1981, which featured several new pieces and new arrangements, much to the critics' delight. The New York Times wrote, The chorus is less than a year old, having been organized last August, but there is nothing about it that, might, that suggested immaturity. Musicianship and diction were exemplary, the dark tuxedos worn by all singers made for a neat appearance, and the entrances and exits had been planned to achieve optimum efficiency, dignity, and style. Again, exactly what you would expect from a <laughs> But yes, <laughs> their clothes are so neat and they're so clean whenever they sing. Like, they're just show up and disheveled and I don't, what is the, what are you thinking? I don't know. What were they expecting? So that same year, 1981, the San Francisco Chorus began a national tour. They performed in nine cities, Dallas, Minneapolis, Lincoln, Detroit, New York City, Boston, Washington, D.C. at the Kennedy Center, Seattle, and finally returned to San Francisco. Their performance at Davis Symphony Hall was so phenomenal that the San Francisco Mayor Diane Feinstein awarded the chorus the key to the city, which was the first time the honor had been bestowed on a gay organization. 
However, though the tour was a critical and artistic success, it left the San Francisco chorus with a debt of $200,000. This debt was covered in part by the mortgages on the homes of three members, and it took them 10 years to pay off the bill. Their final payment was made just months short of the tour's 10th anniversary. So they were committed. It was hard to get funding and sponsorship, though. Oh, yeah. Because even though people loved the game and scores, no business wants to put their name on it. Right. They don't want to... I mean, you have to think about it. They don't want to show support because then they could lose a big right, chunk of their customers. Their business. And yeah. Yeah. So like people love going to the chorus, but they like, again, sponsorship is a huge part of community chorus. Like my fiance is in a community chorus and you know, they, when you go there, their programs are just filled with sponsors mm-hmm. that help make it possible, but they couldn't get, they could hardly get any sponsorship mm-hmm. because uh, because they and all, and a lot of it was also because they refused to take the word gay out of their course because people even said if you would just call yourself the men's course you can be gay we don't care just don't keep it in right. the name we but don't they want refused, our name next yeah to that. but they refused to take it out of the course so despite the financial setback the chorus still continued to inspire a few men who had heard them at the Kennedy Center in DC started their own chorus in the country's capital the first meeting occurred in the old gay community center at ni- uh, 1469 Church Street in Northwest Washington with only 18 men. Jim Richardson became the new organization's temporary director with the first rehe- with the first rehearsals being held at the center and later at the first congressional church in downtown Washington. By the end of the year, the chorus had grown to 90 members. On December 12, 1981, the chorus performed its first holiday concert jointly with the DC area feminist chorus and different drummers. The church was packed to standing room only with an audience of close to 1,000. Yeah, that's 1981, an openly gay chorus performing to an audience of 1,000 people. I mean, that's that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. In the city's capital. Yep. By 1983, gay and lesbian choruses had sprung up all over the world, from Canada to Sweden to Australia and more. That year, the first National Gay and Lesbian Choral Festival come out and sing together. Coast. Wow. Are we surprised that the gays picked the best? That's such. A- They're like, well, we know we've we've got to make this into an acronym, folks. An acronym that works for everyone. So what can we do? Excuse me, I didn't mean to end that sentence with a loud burp. <laughs> Come out and sing together. Coast was staged, and it was staged at the New York City's Lincoln Center. The event featured one thousand two hundred individuals from 12 choruses from across the united states and it opened with the 55 singers from the newly assembled gay or from the newly assembled chicago gay men's chorus the festival was an opportunity for the different choruses to form a musical organization known as the gay and lesbian association of choruses also known as gala 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 they are good at acronyms (laughs) they are God, gay people, fantastic. <laughs> the festival concluded with the combined courses and featured two world premieres, Libby Larson's Everyone Sang and Ned Rorms, Rorm. Rorms Whitman's Cantata. In 1984, the course performed at the Eastern Division Conference of the American Choral Division Association, ACDA. ACTA. ACTA, man. It was the first time that the ACDA had featured a gay chorus at one of its conventions. Well, it wasn't gay. That's, that's why they, why the that's why they sucked at their acronyms. Yeah. So, yeah. So, 1984, the first time that they allowed a gay chorus to uh, perform. 
But just as gay and lesbian Americans were beginning to shine in the spotlight, a deadly villain was rising to crush their voices. The AIDS epidemic had started to break in the early 80s, and by the mid-80s was in full swing. Despite the community's desperate cries to the government for help, President Reagan and Vice President George H.W. Bush, covered in our last episode, yep. ignored their dying countrymen. No group within the queer community was exempt from the devastating disease, and the men's chorus was no exception. The Portland Gay Men's Chorus dropped from 120 members to only 30 within a few years. Today, the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus lists over 250 members that have lo- they have lost to AIDS over the years. One member spoke of how he w- spent every Sunday and Wednesday visiting members in the hospital, and supporter Meredith May wrote, As AIDS took its toll, chorus members used concerts as a way to bring a sense of urgency to the public. The group's music became more somber and began including AIDS requiems. The chorus also became a place for members to talk openly about HIV and AIDS. Men shared tips on how to get into clinical drug trials and, um, and serenaded friends throughout their last breaths. For men who were fighting for their lives, often alone and estranged from parents who had turned their backs on a gay child, the chorus became friend, uh, family. So this is where it like really turned, because before then it was just about having a community chorus, but now it was becoming the only source of community that a lot of men had. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, but the men's gay chorus was the big thing. There were some lesbian choruses, but they weren't as well known, and they weren't as prominent. Um, so for gay men, though, especially where the stigma was the harshest in the gay during the AIDS epidemic, <laughs> this was their community, and um, you know, and it, it, and then this is when they start to p- turn a little political because they're kind of known now, most of them at least, for you know performing at political events, for doing political um, uh, charities yep. and, and fundraisers, and but this is when it shifted. Before then, it wasn't about any of that. It was just about singing. And now it starts to, you know, you're watching your friends die, your friends in chorus, like the Portland Gay, 120 Portland Gay chorus goes from 120 people to only 30. You know, you watched like two thirds of your your group die, you know. So as the artists watched their fellow members die, the choruses were forced to get political. New songs that spoke about the epidemic were commissioned, benefits were held, and proceeds from regular shows were donated. The San Francisco chorus commissioned Invocation and Dance by David Kant in 1986. Kant or Conte? Conte. Conte in 1986. It was one of the earliest pieces to deal with AIDS and is now considered a standard for American choral literature. The Chorus of Washington, D.C. donated the proceeds of $5,700 to the Whitman Walker Clinic and its fight against AIDS. The brothers in New York participated in a high-profiled AIDS benefit, The Best of the Best, a show of concern at the Metropolitan Opera House. So while these choruses are working to donate all the money that they don't have to help exactly. fight this, the government's still not even talking about these exactly. issues. Exactly. As the San Francisco chorus is $200,000 in debt, you know, and donating every penny that they can, yeah, you're right. Reagan and, and Bush are completely ignoring the people dying. While they're funneling money into all these horrible military systems. and Yeah, destabilizing countries all around the world. Um, the Iran-Contra affair, all that, you know, sending money to, you know, so that uh, terrorists can, uh, and military states can overtake countries. We got money for that, but we don't have money for the people in our country who are dying. Yep. Fuck you, Reagan. (laughs) (laughs) A European tour was scheduled for 1988, and the New York City Gay Men's Chorus became the first American gay chorus to tour Europe with performances in London, Amsterdam, Cologne, Germany, and Paris. 
The performances were all used as benefits for the local communities to raise funds to combat the AIDS crisis in those cities. In London, the concert was hosted by Ian McKellen and featured the iconic Eartha Kitt. Wow, I bet that was great. (laughs) They would return to Europe three more times over the next 25 years, performing with the Seattle Gaiman's Chorus, the biggest community chorus in America, and the London London Gaiman's Chorus. Yeah, it's really crazy because the San Francisco Gaiman's Chorus like sparked all of these. It's yeah, like an it's entire a revolution around the world. In 1989, after a year-long battle, the chorus of Washington, D.C. was allowed to participate in the AIDS healing service at the Washington National Cathedral. The previous year, the chorus had been asked to participate in the 1988 service, only to have the invitation rescinded because the Episcopal hierarchy deemed us too political. Hmm. I don't know why I said it that way, I but I did. <laughs> One member stated. <laughs> I thought it was the, the hierarchy talking, but it wasn't. It was a member of the chorus stating. All right. So the group was not allowed to use their official name because the word gay was too controversial. Chorus leadership pursued the issue in 1989, and the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church yielded. Instances like this were common for gay choruses who were often booted from venues last minute when the owner or supervisor realized they were unapologetically queer. We're the gay men's chorus. Yeah, yeah, come on in. <laughs> yeah, and right. then it's like the day before. Oh, wait. Uh, did you say the gay, the gay men's, men's chorus? Co- I didn't know there were going to be gay men in this. Literally, we... Yeah. <laughs> our name, like, we put our name right yeah, at the top. I just thought you guys were just a happy group of fellows. That's what I thought. <laughs> But our community's resilience remained in the face of personal hatred, government backlash, and the loss of so many lives to AIDS. By the 1990s, medical advancement had begun to clamp a lid on the epidemic. Some choruses returned to an apolitical stance, but many had been bitten with the bug of activism. Gay choruses began to be... Gay choruses began to be seen... (laughs) Be. It's it's still be. (laughs) It's a typo. Anyway... (laughs) Gay choruses began to be seen, not just for their vocal abilities, but for their commitment to the community. The Turtle Creek Chorus of Dallas, Texas, summed up choral activism when speaking of their own. Today, I see pure love of music and being challenged by their art as the main motivator for TCC's 190 singers. But also, singers want to be a part of something bigger in terms of social change, and they join for the sense of community. All of these are part of the motivation. That was very... Gay choral, right? I feel like it fit. I feel like it fit. Mm-hmm. That's probably it's exactly what he, but yeah, it's probably exactly what he said. But it probably was what he said. It's like I don't want to be a stereotype, but also <laughs> <laughs> this group, this group, the Turtle Creek, what's it called? the the Turtle Creek Chorus of Dallas knows firsthand what social that social activism. Oh my God. <laughs> This group, the Turtle Creek uh, Chorus of Dallas, Texas, knows firsthand that social activism opens them up to discrimination. One year, they were slotted to perform as part of a benefit benefit program at a synagogue. On the program were three singing groups from the Plano Public Schools. During a radio call-in show, someone asked one of the school's administrators if they knew that his students would be performing with homosexuals. You know, there's going to be some queers on that show. (laughs) That led to the school groups being withdrawn from the program, but not before it got a lot of publicity. The publicity was great, and the synagogue sold out the event, (laughs) they reported. As for the students, half of the members of one of the withdrawn choirs came anyway and performed with the TCC to great acclaim. 
So they yeah, had to. They were like, "Fuck yeah. you, buddy." We're coming yeah. anyways. Can't have the kids singing with all those homos. You know, they're all gonna become a bunch of queers themselves. Mm-hmm. They pull the kids out. Fantastic. Courses across America continued to be open and proud as arguments surrounding sodomy laws, don't ask, don't tell, and gay marriage erupted in the 90s. In 1992, the Boston Gay Men's Course experienced their first confrontation from protesters in St. Johnsbury, Vermont. About 40 protesters assembled outside of the North Congregational Church, one of 10 churches who sponsored the performance as part of the AIDS Community Awareness Project. In addition, a local newspaper published an editorial piece and two advertisements denouncing the performance. During the same tour, a New Hampshire paper, the Dartmouth Review, published an editorial piece in which it referred to the course as a traveling sodomy circus. <laughs> what? I mean, that would probably be really fun. Like. <laughs> yeah. And now, the traveling sodomy circus. <laughs> They're like riding out, on, like they're pedaling out on the bike, and every time the the wheel turns, like it, one of them goes up and down. Like, <laughs> and the what the the handle the seat is like a dildo. Yeah. Oh, okay, so they're like pedaling in this. Gym. And they yeah. The guys swinging from the the rafters naked. Exactly. And they like fly in the air. They're all naked, or they have the little like lion cloth and sparkly like cloth over their their no, private it's a parts. Circus, so they all like they're flipping in the air, like okay, the acrobats. oh, and they're just fucking yeah. they, everything. is just a fuck fest. And someone's like, ah, uh, some woman brought her child. She's like, wait a minute, we wait, thought we were seeing so, the elephant. You know how there's usually a lion in the cage with like the whip. Exactly. There's a guy, and then there's two guys fucking. They have the whip. They're like okay. smacking the guy smacking the whip. Like on the BDS. Yeah, he's got like the all leather and everything she's like Johnny don't look we went to the wrong circus I don't know how it happened does anybody know where ringling is instead of throwing circus penises penis <laughs> yes they're throwing penises and instead. A, instead of throwing circus peanuts they're throwing bottles of um lube no not yes but also um fuck what's it called the oh poppers yes <laughs> poppers up in the crowd condoms oh yes Sodomy Circus is the best event you've ever been to. Must be at least 18 or older. <laughs> so, <laughs> these protests of the Sodomy Circus, the traveling Sodomy Circus, came shortly after the Vermont Governor Howard Dean had signed a gay rights bill into law. So basically, it's just a reaction to gay people getting equal rights, uh, the slightest bit of equal rights. They can rights. be somewhat equal to us? How dare they? Exactly. Man. Get out of here with your sodomy circles and you're trying to sing with our children. <laughs> Again, instances like these were common, but they did not quiet the voices of gay choruses, nor did they stop their activism. Not simply for the queer community, but all oppressed communities... With the AIDS epidemic becoming less central to public need, many choruses began to donate their proceeds to other causes. The San Francisco Chorus has raised thousands of dollars for various charities in recent years. Their Giving Back concerts raised funds for women in 2000, young people in 2002, as well as breast cancer. They've also donated programming to reach out to transgender, African-American, and faith-based communities in 2004, participated in Special Olympics events from 2003 to 2005, 2005, and added a Spanish-language ensemble in 2005, along with a sponsorship for LGBT Youth Chorus in 2006. But yes, so just a traveling sodomy circus. That's what they're all about. Yeah, that's all they're doing. It's good, easy for you to stay on your fucking high horse as you do nothing. Thoughts and prayers to every person in need, 
They're going. I gotta type. Send thoughts and prayers. <laughs> thoughts and while prayers. I'm gonna go, not I'm gonna walk right past the homeless person, mm-hmm. past the, um, and go to dinner and tip my waitress a dollar on the exactly because she bill. didn't give me a good a good thing, and I'm not gonna give that guy on the street a dollar because he's just gonna go buy alcohol. But thoughts and prayers to your family. Thoughts and prayers to your families. Don't go to the traveling sodomy circus because you know. They're just using all that money to fuck each other. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe they're using their money to help others, and that's what you really don't want to give your money oh, to. Oh, yeah, that's true. Maybe that's the truth. You just don't really care about, you know, other people. poor communities, people with special needs, blah, blah, blah. Right. During the early 2000s, the demand for gay male choruses seemed to explode in the media because now we were all kitschy and cute. This is when things started to get good. Yeah. Especially around Christmas time. In December of 2008, the Gay Men's Chorus of Washington, D.C. performed on live television in a tribute to Elizabeth Taylor, which is very appropriate. The Chicago Gay Men's Chorus has put on numerous theatrical performances, including The Ten Commandments, the musical in 2006. Oh, I wish we could have seen that. Uh, That would have been been fantastic. They also sang on the state capitol steps when Governor Quinn signed Illinois' same-sex marriage law. That's Chicago gave a marriage. Yep. Yeah. And their popularity has traveled overseas as well. The Boston Gay Men's Chorus was the first gay chorus to perform in Poland in 2005 and toured the Middle East in 2015. That, well, that is... I mean, it must, I mean it's good for the people there who needed mm-hmm. that, but I, that's... It's kind of scary because it's just uh, yeah. really aggressive over there. That is, that's brave. That's brave. Though they were forced to find a new venue for their performance in Istanbul after the original venue backed out of its agreement due to public outcry, the chorus was able to find an alternative venue at Bosphorus University. The following day, the Istanbul Pride Parade was canceled and chorus members who planned to march were turned away by riot police, but their obstacles have, have not discouraged others. This past September, the Portland Gay Men's Chorus was the first gay American chorus to tour China. Today we see a stark difference in the performances of gay men's choruses. While 30 years ago they were literally singing for their lives and the lives of their friends, today they can sing in celebration. In 2010, the Washington, D.C. chorus performed a Pink Nutcracker, a concert salute to the 2010 congressionally enacted end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, the bigoted policy on gays and lesbians serving in the U.S. Armed Forces. They also performed in front of the Supreme Court after the Supreme Court delivered their ruling which struck down DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act. As we continue to march forward, singing and dancing all the way, we are inspired to continue our fight. No matter what happens, our community will survive. We will always be here to oppose hatred, to offer unconditional love, and to make the holidays so fucking gay. So gay. The holidays. The holidays. So, Christians, we hope that you have and are having a wonderful holiday season. If a gay sex circus ever comes to your town, please go see it. Go see it. See if you can get involved. (laughs) Get in there somewhere. I don't know, be in, be in a lion's cage, jump through a hoop. Oh, the um, flaming hoops. The flaming hoops. You have uh, to run and jump through and land hoop. with your legs spread, like, <laughs> land on it. <laughs> I would say the flaming hoops could just be, like, two very flamboyant queens, like, bent over backwards with their hands studied, <laughs> you know? I don't know. Good. I've got some great ideas for our traveling sodomy circus. Coming to a place near you. Um... But until then, have a wonderful holiday season. 
And we love you, our allied hookers. <laughs> and we hope you savor each moment, you succulent sapphists. So stay queer and don't get a lobotomy. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe and review wherever you are listening and follow us on social media at Your Queer Story. Like what you heard? Want to share your story? Send us a voice message to add to the podcast from the Anchor app or at anchor.fm slash yourqueerstory. And if you would like to support the work we do or get exclusive content, check us out on patreon.com slash yourqueerstory. See you next week. Bye. Bye.